0: This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit FilmGeekRadio.com for more great shows. A great hand reached out of the dark and grasped mine for a moment, mightily and tenderly.
1: I said to myself, the veil between, though very dark, is very thin. Hello, and welcome to The Thin Place the Film Geek radio podcast devoted to discussions of religion, faith, and spirituality in film. Your hosts for this episode are Todd Truffin, that's me, and Ken Morfield. Present. This is episode number 37 for July 2013. Our topic for this episode is Gojira, the 1954 Ishiro Honda film better known to us Americans as Godzilla. This episode is not a spoiler-free discussion because the film was released in 1954. If you have not yet seen the film and do not want plot spoilers, the film was released in 1954. Now would be a good time to check out one of the other great podcasts on Film Geek Radio. So, Ken why are we watching a 1954 film that features a man romping around in a rubber suit?
0: Well, I don't know, but <laughs> I, I would say about the spoiler thing that there are actually some spoilers. If you haven't seen the film and I don't know if I had ever seen the film before, probably the main reason I think that we settled on Godzilla is that I recently saw Pacific Rim, Todd, has not yet seen it. I have not. He is, he is a bad film critic. And I had made a remark in my review of Pacific Rim that I thought Pacific Rim flew a little bit in the face of its historical antecedents by embracing or elevating technology as a, not necessarily the cause of humanity's imminent destruction, but the solution for it. But it occurred to me in saying that, that I did not in fact know that to be true, that I had heard some general assessments about what Godzilla and Mecha Monsters and that whole branch of sci-fi was all about. And I wasn't sure that I had ever actually seen Gojira. You know, it never seems to be a better time to check out a movie than after you've already characterized it and you want to find out if you're right.
1: I would also say that in our last episode, number 36, we spent a fair amount of time talking about various conventions of certain types of action movie genre and pointing out why certain previous films from this year really, really were not good. And I I also thought it would would be interesting. We kind of have this notion that old films are better. Um, at certain things, um, and to see, well, if it was. So what is the general overall plot that we're dealing with here? I think most people know
0: the plot, the general plot of Godzilla. Godzilla appears, Godzilla attacks, Godzilla is uh, eventually defeated. There are a couple of key plot points that I think are pertinent to our discussion. Uh, The first is that Godzilla is released from wherever he lives, below the water, by some kind of nuclear bomb detonation testing. I found that important because I had always assumed that the nuclear testing created Godzilla. But in fact, in the movie, that's not true. They say Gojira is just the natural descendant of the dinosaurs from the Jurassic period, where were We have that emphasized more than once. It's very specific. It's from the Jurassic period. Uh, However, for one reason or another, they are limited to their niche. They live where they live, and they're not going to interact with human species uh, until this nuclear testing either destroys his habitat or forces him to come out. Now, it may be in subsequent Godzilla films that the nuclear testing is blamed for it, but in this particular case, it is not. That's the catalyst that sends it out. Godzilla does much destruction. There is a subplot involved with a romantic triangle between the scientist, the hero, and a young woman who becomes aware of a super weapon called the
1: the oxygen
0: destroyer. destroyer the thing. oxygen destroyer. I believe that's what that's going to vaporize or kill things that are underwater they think can be used to kill Godzilla. But uh, the scientist says this is too horrible. It it should never be used. uh, But there's no other way. And he's also afraid that once they use it, it's going to be revealed that he knows how to make this weapon and he will be co-opted by the military and governments of the world. He is eventually talked into using it by the heroin, but only under the condition... He agrees to use it only under the condition that he destroy all of his notes and then commit suicide after it works so that he can't be forced to reveal the secrets. Godzilla is killed. Our scientist hero commits suicide. And then there's a CODA warning that says we were able to defeat this monster, but since the secret of the oxygen destroyer is now gone, we couldn't be able to destroy any other monsters, therefore all this nuclear testing has to stop because that might release another Godzilla and we don't know how
1: many more there are. Right. So, yeah, that the ending of the film is, I, I found, very fascinating. Certainly in the background, we get all sorts of celebration. Um, all the military people are jumping up and down. Yay, we killed the monster. This is great. But our, our main characters are much more somber, and certainly the, the music is more somber. It, it is not a triumphant ending. Um, and, and we really do get this, there, there is that, that sense of, yes, we have survived and even won this round, but that if we do not change our behavior, this is going to happen again, and there's no guarantee. Right. Right. Which is a a really different way to end a monster movie than I think we're used to seeing.
0: Well, I do think that it bore out what I had been told, which is that even though the technology did not create Godzilla, there is a very strong theme in Gojira of... Man's inability to master or use technology or scientific advances, uh, that these advances have outstripped our moral, ethical, or, well, moral or ethical ability to use them responsibly, and therefore, uh, technology, while not inherently bad, is a threat to the eventual survival of the the human species. So I, I, I think that was true. I also wanted to pick up on something you said about the somberness of the ending. One of the things that's helpful about looking at old movies is it makes you realize the things that you sort of take for granted. Oftentimes, the very conventionality of certain genres means that things seem normal to you, and it's not until you see it done differently that you begin to question it. One of the things that I found very striking about Gojira is that people die, and a lot of people die, and a lot of people are shown dying, not in close-up shots of heads exploding, but it's not just this property damage that we're used to in White House Down or Pacific Rim where you know that... Oh, thousands of people must have died, but you only actually see on screen buildings being crashed. You don't necessarily see people falling out of the buildings or you see an exp, you know, explosion, but you don't necessarily see the people screaming. And it's interesting to me that there's a lot of property damage in Gojira, but you definitely see people dying as a result of that from the opening shots where there are telegraph operators in a ship that are telegraphing what happens and the water comes into the ship and they're killed to TV broadcasters being on the antenna reporting on Godzilla and Godzilla comes and attacks the tower and you actually see them falling off the tower to people in the train cars that Godzilla is picking up. So um, that somberness is very, it's not just, the hero committing suicide at the end, who who dies. Right. And there is a sense of mass destruction, but also mass
1: death, death and suffering. Um. You know, certainly in our last episode, one of the things that we were really concerned with a film like White House Down was this sort of lackadaisical attitude towards the collateral damage. And in, I should say too that in in White House Down is actually.
0: Marginally better than that than the Avengers or Pacific right. Rim in the sense of you do actually see some people dying that are part of the Secret Service right. or the tour groups or. But I think our problem there was more the the. the, the movie, yeah, and
1: their deaths carried no weight, and at the end, were pretty much forgotten. Whereas, whereas in Gojira, you know, in addition to the scenes that Ken has already described, we also get various scenes like in hospitals, you know, in the aftermath of the Gojira attack, where people in the wards, we see children who are crying out for their parents who are missing. We get a real sense that not just in death, but also in suffering, that this has had a major impact on human beings' lives, Um, not just cardboard cutout characters, uh, but these are real people um, who are suffering the results of this uh, disaster.
0: Yeah, the the one mother-daughter scene that you said was, was quite poignant, even after 50 years, and I was comparing it to a daughter or a girl walking through the destruction in Pacific Rim, where the mother is saying, you know, it'll be over soon, we're going to go be with Daddy soon, and, and I don't think we actually see their death on on screen, but there's every implication that they do, in fact, die. Yeah. And that what we're seeing is, you know, the last minutes of of that. And I think in a modern day action film, we would never actually see that scene except for the heroes to come in and save them at the last second. Mm-hmm. And we know that even though other people died, we're not going to see the last seconds of a mother, you know, comforting her her child in the face of, of imminent death.
1: Right. And, you know, all this talk about, you know, treating death, Seriously. Yeah, that was certainly one of our concerns in the last episode. And I think, you know, we're seeing a better example here. But that also leads us to, you've mentioned uh, the scientist hero um, at the end who, who has the solution. He has developed this uh, weapon that can defeat Godzilla and who, in the end, allows it to be used once, but then, you know, burns all of his notes. Obviously, in an age when you know, there there was thought that simply burning your notebooks was good enough. You know, there was no other way to find out this information. But then he also kills himself. Um, and setting aside, I think for the moment, perhaps the you know a cultural difference between Japan and, and the United States about our thoughts about suicide. Yeah, you know, I think there's it, it raises this interesting question of a how do we deal with um, sacrifice because you know his choice to kill himself does seem to be perhaps somewhat sacrificial in the sense that he knows that if he doesn't, if he he lives, the government is going to make him recreate his work or talk or something. Um, And he doesn't want that. Um, And also he really does die. Um, And that sort of heroism that we see in, in modern films, Ken, you've talked about what you would say the Disneyfication of the sacrifice, and you know perhaps you can get into that.
0: Yeah, the, when I said the Disneyfication, I I mean that 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 false death that you see at the end of a lot of Disney movies post Bambi, where I think Bambi was the last one I saw where the mother was actually dead or the main mm-hmm. character was actually. Uh, dead where we see the, we get all the emotional impact of death Um but then you know there's a kiss there's a magic pixie dust there's whatever and then oh we were saved at the last minute I think has infiltrated the modern action movie as well where we get the nobility of the sacrifice but then the character somehow escapes death and uh some examples that I was thinking of, well, you know, in the start, the original Star Trek, Kirk's father dies, uh, but in the end of the more recent one there is a sacrifice where we think a character is dead, but they manage to actually get the emotional payoff of, Oh, he's died, but not really. I mean I think in um so you get a little bit of that. There's there's a little bit of that in Pacific Rim where it seems inevitable that a character will have to sacrifice himself and then Works out where, you know, it doesn't. Uh, so I, I do think that there is this, this notion of in the more modern movie, we want the hero to make the sacrifice, but it's become a convention that, uh, they don't actually have to pay the price. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also wanted to say about the scientist suicide at the end that The thing that really struck me about that, and this isn't exactly the question that you asked, but that in Gojira, Godzilla is not the enemy. Godzilla is treated as an animal, Mm -hmm. you know, an animal who is certainly doing a lot of destruction and must be dealt with. But the conflict, the enemy is actually other human beings. It's, I mean, this person doesn't sacrifice himself. Because that's the only way to kill Godzilla. He sacrifices himself because by killing Godzilla, he will have revealed that he has this information that he is afraid will be forced out of him or tortured out of him by governments of the world, by militaries of, you know, of the world, and he couldn't bear to, to deal with that. And so the, the more imminent threat or the greater threat, the sacrifice is not done to save humanity from aliens or from a monster, the sacrifice is done to save humanity from other human you know, right. from other human beings. And I think that's a very I think that's a very interesting difference. I don't know how much of that goes back to some cultural commentators have suggested that because of Political polarization. We can't have enemies anymore. That the only safe enemies are Nazis or monsters or zombies, uh, mm-hmm. because otherwise everyone will complain and say you made these people the 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 enemy, and that's not fair. Or that's not right. We talked a little bit about that in in White House Down about how whoever the traitor is, we have to have a commensurate good guy from that ethnic group or that organization to show that we're not painting everyone with a bad brush or something like that. But because definitely seems to be coming from a time period where there was a lot more comfort on the point for at the point of artists identifying things that they were speaking out against and saying, No, I will paint government with a bad brush or I will paint military with a bad brush or I, you know, and I trust the audience to be sophisticated enough to understand that not every person in the military was bad, but I nevertheless feel that to be a threat or a greater threat that I as an individual am responsible for, for fighting or doing something about.
1: Well, and, and, and even in Gojira, we do see, you know, these, these conflicts, you know, are brought into kind of single person, you know, act, interaction. Um, the, the father of the, uh, woman who is the love interest and who is a paleontologist and, you know, his big goal is I want to study Godzilla. Right. Um, you know, he's much more the humanist. Of uh, let, let us explore and learn. I, I forget the actor's name, but he was actually in Akira Kurosawa's Ikiru. Yeah, he was in Ikiru, which you know is a very interesting connection with the 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 lone individual butting up against the government and um, ways of facing death, and ways of facing death. Um, and uh, and so you know you you see him there, but the the young man that the girl is in love with is very much on the side of we must destroy Godzilla and it becomes a you know kind of part of the drama of the love triangle is that the dispute between the the boy and the father kind of creates some tension in the love triangle but you know we, we do see that argument being played out as with individuals you know as well as the larger kind of national thing now in the end of course you know the boy being a boy learns that obviously the father was correct. Um, but I, I agree with you that it's a very interesting distinction that as opposed to some of the later Godzilla movies that get into all sorts of mythical, you know, there's a myth- mythical, island where all sorts of monsters live and monsters are on different sides of things. Um, in the original, in Gojira, um, it really is human beings who, who are the problem. Um, whether it's the military who wants to just kill Godzilla, or you know, going all the way back to what caused the conflict to begin with, um, you know, this testing nuclear weapons that has you know, changed the environment in some ways to make the monsters need to come out of where they've been living. Um, so you know, there there is that very interesting connection at the time, the big concern is nuclear weapons i think there's some pretty easy connections that we could make to global warming type issues today of human beings are doing something that's affecting the environment that is creating problems
0: well i yeah i mean i think another contrast i would see to the modern day movies and i pick on pacific rim not because it's a particularly bad movie in a bad summer it's it was one of the better ones, but because it's connection to the source material is is Right. right. And it's typical. Is that at the end problem has been solved. You know, it is a once and for all thing. The problem has been solved. Whereas at the end of Gojira, the imminent threat has been dealt with, but there's still a greater problem. The, the underlying causes that went into this causing this to happen still need to be dealt with there. There's a warning that says, okay, we had this weapon, but we don't have it anymore. Uh, If we continue to do nuclear testing and we release more Godzillas, which there probably are, then we will be stuck. So we're going to have to learn how to deal deal with this. I think that's the connection with, with global warming. Whereas it seems like in the modern day action movie, we're much more, Comfortable with some kind of military threat where success, failure, y- repelling has been is very concrete and very specific. And uh, and yet that means then for the sequels, we have to come up with a bigger, greater threat or something that it's never really put away. But there's never, it seems to be, there never seems to be discussion in the modern film of this notion of what caused this to happen and can we deal with that as well?
1: And to kind of bring this into a thin place perspective, I think the point you're making here in terms of dealing with, you know, big global issues is certainly there. But I, I think the more we tell ourselves this story, You know this idea that oh, you fix the problem and it's fixed has some. I don't want. I don't. Dangerous is the right word. Has some serious implications when we start thinking about spiritual health, spiritual development. The idea that oh, if I conquer this thing, well, it's conquered. It's done. Um, And I don't think our spiritual experience reveals that to be true in our in personal development.
0: Right. Uh, I'll probably channel or parrot. Dallas Willard, who has, you know, left us this year. But uh I, I I do think that there is this tendency, I'm thinking about what his teachings in the Divine Conspiracy. Uh he has a chapter called Gospels of Sin Management, where he says that most people, including most Christians, don't actually believe that transformation is possible, moral transformation, character transformation, because they haven't experienced it, they haven't seen it, and so they're much more comfortable with Gospels of Sin Management, ways of trying to minimize or deal with or manage the consequences of sinful behavior rather than eliminate the the sin because they don't think that that's really possible. Uh, And so we find ways of saying if gluttony is the underlying problem, you don't have to curb your appetite. We'll just you know, try to manipulate food to make them less unhealthy, even though they're still there. If greed or uh, lust for power is the underlying problem and it's creating these weapons that we don't know how to deal with, well, we'll come up with another fix maybe we're getting radiation that's poisoning people but we'll have medical advances that will will kind of fix that and i think that there definitely seems to be the, this notion of the i i think that you are right that there are spiritual implications of looking at or being constantly fed with these entertainment vehicles where if it's on television, problems resolved in 47 minutes, you know, cases closed, uh, say in a law and order kind of way where the average court case goes on for months and months and months, even though I, I like law and order. Uh, 47 minutes later, it's we have a resolution. Or in, in the primary action film where uh, problems that are years in the making uh, maybe decades in the making are culminated in some big battle. And then that big battle means that we have, um, we have dealt with, we have dealt with the problem. Um, in fact, I didn't go so far as to say with Pacific Rim, uh, one of the more disturbing aspects of it for me is that when they're going into that final battle, uh the, One character's main speech says, we have chosen to believe in ourselves.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, Right.
0: There were other people who thought of other things that we might have done, you know, I don't know, interstellar travel, go away or whatever. But, you know, we built these giant machines that we could get into so that we could fight uh, so that we could do it. Now, we are going to go cancel the apocalypse and that whole I mean, on the one hand, there is that sort of sense of apocalypse can mean a lot of different things outside of a religious particular context. Uh, but, you know, we seem to have actually done a 180, which is where I started with wanting to revisit Gojira with Pacific Rim. Whereas, from Gojira, whereas Gojira says, okay, we. We believed in ourselves and look at the destruction that we wrought with these nuclear weapons and the havoc that we've unleashed. We, you know, we need to stop. Whereas Pacific Rim says, look at all this havoc that the universe has unloaded on us. You know, the, the, the monsters in Pacific Rim are apparently not caused by anything that we've done. And so destruction on a mass scale is not tied to any human behavior. But thank goodness we're here to fix it, to
1: save it. Yeah, so you have this simultaneous kind of thing of we are in total control. No matter what anybody can throw at us, we, the human beings, can solve whatever problem it is. And there's also a none of this is our fault. Yes. So it requires no self-examination. Because if all I'm doing is responding to bad things the universe has thrown at me, Why would I need to examine myself except in the sense of, do I have enough courage?
0: Well, and Pacific Rim is very much in that American exceptionalism, action, top gun tradition that we talked about in the White House Down podcast, which says military industrial complex or, you know, organizations, structures, institutions, bad Individuals good. It's actually a handful of exceptional individuals Mm -hmm. who believe in and trust. And there is, it seems to me, much more cooperation in Gojira. The paleontologist has different fears or different ideas of what he wants to do, but he collects the scientific information. He shares it with the people. Uh, the other scientist, you know, has to work together. He makes the instrument but he doesn't just hand it over and so there are exceptional individuals who save us but their exceptionalism is not just in their fighting ability or in their prowess a la achilles or in some epic it's actually in their moral consciousness as well that with an advancement in degrees of being able to save the world uh, comes a consideration of what sort of responsibilities does that put on me? Whereas, um, you know, the, the modern-day action hero is just the grunt soldier who is just good at fighting and doesn't think beyond that because that's all the problem requires. You know, the problem doesn't require any greater thought or any greater uh, consideration of causes and how to fix things or change things you know the, right. the modern day epic is not really about fixing things or stopping things it's just about
1: defeating things you know yeah and I think that, that's, a, that's a huge distinction and an important one in the pre-production conversation we were having we were also talking a bit about um, this point we had made earlier about sacrifice and, and, and again, you're talking about uh, Sarazawa is the, the scientist who comes up with the, the weapon to destroy Godzilla, and then uh, kills himself so that others, you know, will not be able to get this weapon again. And you know that idea of the hero being someone who sacrifices himself for the good of the community. And, you know, just as if we keep feeding ourselves stories that say we have the little battle, we pick, we fight it, we win, and then it, that's it, the dangerous ramifications that has, you know, I guess my other concern is when we see these stories where the hero, the sacrifice is really cheapened, is that, you know, we, we also have a similar sort of cheapening of our thoughts of what it means to be a hero and what sacrifice means. And then as Christians, that, you know, inevitably, at least in my mind, leads us back to thinking about, you know, changing or possibly affecting the way we think about Christ's sacrifice. Um, and as we discussed, I mean, throughout the history of the church, there's been all sorts of debate as to whether or not Christ, you know, knew that he would be resurrected. Um, did he in fact actually die? If he didn't die then you know what did the crucifixion mean was it was it enough for him simply to be willing to sacrifice himself um, and yet that doesn't seem to square with for instance you know Christ in the garden you know sweating blood because he's like Lord if you will take this cup for me you know, obviously there he seemed to fear something um, but you know it really is going to affect. I, I, I would history. hesitate to say those
0: have been debates within the church. I think those have been interpretations of the Bible outside of the church. I mean, you know, we can get into church history, <laughs> but, but not really, because I'll <laughs> quickly find myself out of my depth. But, me too. Uh, <laughs> but it's hard for me to see any plain reading of the Gospels uh, that would support an interpretation that Jesus didn't know that he was going to die. And be resurrected because he seems to be teaching that to the disciples as they're getting ready to go. And, and it's clear to me that the disciples didn't get it or didn't understand until after the fact. But you know, I would say any interpretation of the, those stories, which gain credence in a broader cultural context come because of people who don't believe in the supernatural resurrection to begin with. And so are trying to. Say what is the story symbolized? Because yeah. it can't possibly. Well, I mean, truly. I think the
1: the debates I've have heard have a lot to do with whether you know it. It's that that gnarly question of Christ being fully human and fully mm-hmm. man, and what does that mean, right? Um, but I you know I think if the more we tell ourselves stories about heroes who make a gesture at sacrifice and don't have to pay a price, um, I just I wonder about. You know, how that kind of, in a sense, retroactively affects the way we read, you know, other situations of sacrifice. Well,
0: I I mean, I would see two possibilities uh, quickly. One is that I think it can affect us in the sense of undercutting the psychological impact of the sacrifice. And what it meant. I, I, I think the f- whole foreknowledge question in Jesus' case comes down to the fact that as Christians, we've heard the gospel story so many times. And we know what's happening in the next chapter. So right. it, it's sort of like, it. then it doesn't become this, oh, I'm giving myself over to death. It's just going to become, I'm giving myself over to be tortured for work. Three days, and the worst thing is not actually the dying; it's it's something else. And uh because you know we've been through the story so many times that we know how it ends, but that can rob us of the feeling of what it must have been like to go through it because it only happened once. Uh, the more pertinent danger for me is that I think we're, we're we're moving in our genre and our art back to a more classical epic notion of the hero, which is to say we don't think of someone who sacrifices as being a hero. The hero is the person who defeats the other person. I'm thinking of um Patton's that that famous line in in the movie Patton where uh, George C. Scott playing Patton says uh no one ever won a war by dying for his country. He won a war by making some other bitch die for his country. Right. And I think that, that then, I've seen a lot of post-war films this year, whether it's my, my going through Rossellini's post-war films. I I tend to think of Gojira as a post-war film. You know, it's within a decade of the end of, World War II, and it's Japanese, and it's talking about nuclear weapons, which, um, at the time and to this day, Japan is the only country that has had a nuclear war, nuclear weapon dropped on them, right, in war, who has experienced that, and the ways that it thinks about that. And so, I, I think that there is a, I, I haven't teased this out, maybe it'll be, Something we can tease out in future podcasts, but there's a kind of sophistication or a thoughtfulness in the European post World War II films that are processing the films that I find disturbingly absent in the American post war films. You know, with the possible exception of Zero Dark Thirty, with the possible exception of, of Zero Dark Thirty, uh, that. My experience that—I mean, I was writing in 2001 that it seems like we get these epic movies about sweeping heroism in military battle as the build-up to war, to sort of sell war and the romanticize war and the heroism war to make war more palatable as we're going into war, and that we get a little bit more cynical about the costs and consequences of war after the war is over— and what disturbs me is that, I mean, it seems to me we're trying to extricate ourselves from these wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. I know some so people think talking- the war's are already over, right. and yet we're still getting all these mass-budget action films that seem to me to be selling combat. And it's hard for me to
1: disassociate right. selling combat from selling war. Just so we can clarify, because I think I'm confused, when you're saying after or post-war films, you're mm-hmm. talking post-Iraq, mm-hmm. Afghanistan, or cause I'm thinking You know, post-Vietnam, we had all sorts of films that were right. I think, e- examining.
0: Well, I'm the, saying post-World War II, post-Vietnam, it seems to me the pattern is while you're going up to war, and war seems inevitable, or while you're in war, there's a propagandistic element that sure. says... Whether you know this is necessary, and so you get why we fight. You get um you get deeds of heroism, and I, I mean I think that goes all the way back to you know the Iliad or right. whatever. That that war is we have. If you're in a military c- culture and a war culture, our heroes are going to be not people who sacrifice, but people who defeat, who who win. Now sometimes they make sacrifices of their personal desires, their personal happiness, or whatever. Um, in order to do that. And you even have room within that for people who sacrifice themselves within war so that they can win the war. After the war is over, you get an assessment of the cost and say, okay. the sacrifice is terrible. Mm-hmm. And so you get movies like The Post-Vietnam Platoon, The Deer Hunter, and that's, oh, my gosh, this is horrible. We were sold as this was going to be great right. exciting or whatnot, <laughs> but it really wasn't. I'd say even Saving Private Ryan is a very a is a on. very post-war kind of film about you, you know the the awful human cost and let's not do this again. Sure. And so it seems to me that I'd say in dealing with the Iraq war or the Afghanistan war we got that same build up in 2001 2002 I'll, I'll Post a link maybe if we do that to an editorial that I wrote where I was just like, okay, I don't think it's any accident that post 9-11 in the run-up to war, you know, the epics that we got were Matrix Revolutions, the Alamo, Pearl Harbor, uh, you know, Master and Commander, the far end of the world, which were all about, we've been attacked, whether by Napoleon, whether by the Mexican army and we, you know, by the machines and we're all going to band together and and save the world because that's what we think that we're doing. It seems to me that while we were in the middle of it, we got some pushback, particularly in the middle-born films, you know, where it was sort of like, oh, maybe we were sold on some things we can't really trust what government has told us we're becoming a little bit more Cynical, also in the Troy, the you know the the movie Troy, right. you know that there seemed to be a lot more cynicism about war. But the pendulum seems to me to have swung the in the opposite direction, where we get these again, not necessarily pro-war films, but pro-combat films that seem to me that <clears throat> while politically we're ostensibly trying to extract ourselves from a war that most people say was under false pretenses. We didn't find weapons of mass destruction. I mean, that's a whole nother podcast, but, you know. Right. And, well, historically, then, that would be a time period of reflection. You know, what were the costs, human, financial, political, spiritual, of these decisions that we've made, and what were the costs, to link this back to Gojira, of continuing to make the same decisions, right. uh, even though we're questioning whether or not they were wise, and yet the popular entertainment is not giving that that sort of cautionary ending that we get at the Godzilla. It's getting that Top Gun, Pacific Rim, you know, um, White House Down, Mission Impossible. Hooray! We we repelled the invader. We we did it. And if anything, it's important that we keep on creating these exceptional individuals so that we can win the
1: next one, you know? And I think importantly, we do that without actually asking ourselves any hard questions about ourselves. Right. Um, Which, you know, again, you know, the ending of Gojira just, in a sense, kind of forces you to say, whoa,
0: that, that was a long answer to your question, but I want to make sure that I emphasize that part. It was an answer to your question in terms of, what are the consequences of the cultural entertainment that we see on our notion of sacrifice? And increasingly, there's you know, the notion of sacrifice as being a viable form of heroism, an acceptable form of heroism, uh, is increasingly called under question. And the only form of heroism that there is or that we want is the hero who defeats the enemy. Not the hero who sacrifices himself, and I think that would have a lot of very dangerous implications for our theology or for our spiritual well-being. Absolutely, I don't know that people are going to go see Pacific Rim or whatever and say, "Oh, Jesus was a wuss because he couldn't defeat his enemies." No, no more than the person, the kid who's going to see Superman flying and jump off the building. But I think the constant repetition of the cultural norms gradually chips away at our consciousness until, even if we don't articulate
1: those thoughts, it's part of the cultural air that we read. Sure. Well, and that, I mean, that's put too final a point on it. That's how we end up with Passion of the Christ, where the ending is basically Christ resurrecting and saying, okay, it's time to go kick some butt. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that, that that's problematic. And it is, you know, it's one of those questions, you know, people often ask, you know, about, well, at least I get these questions sometimes. of, Well, why do you even pay attention then to these films? And say, like, well, this is as you said, this is the cultural air that we breathe. Mm-hmm. You cannot help but have this affect you in some way. And, and you know, if we know about it, then we can think about it and we can be aware. Um, and to me, that that seems to be the value. Sure. I mean, if you if you got a uh,
0: if you're religious, red says pick up your cross daily and follow me, then you got to have a notion of sacrifice as being some form of self-denial. I mean, if your book of Ephesians says husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church, then you have to think about, well, how did Christ love the church? And certainly part of Christ's role, part of the triune God, is that, yes, he does defeat his enemy. He does conquer death. But clearly part of the way, part of the role of the Godhead, you know, that Christ exemplifies for us is that he gives himself over as a sacrifice. And so that's an understanding of a role or a facet of heroism that I would think Christians would need to understand because they're called on to emulate.
1: Right. Yeah. How Um, we define those terms of sacrifice and servanthood and... The those sorts of things are is going to be very important, right? And power, in power. power. Yes. Um, all right, I think we have gotten into a much deeper conversation than anyone ever thought we could about Godzilla. So, anything else, Ken?
0: I enjoyed the film. You know, I I enjoyed it more than I thought I would. The special effects were better, and and if you've never seen it, we saw it on Hulu Plus. I think it's available on yep. Amazon streaming. It, it it's it's worth seeing if you've never seen it.
1: Yeah, it, it is easily available. It said Hulu Plus has it. Um, it's certainly available on Blu-ray through uh, Criterion. Um, I'm actually interested in seeing that myself because they also include uh, the American version of the film where they film scenes of Richard Burton and. What's it, Raymond Burr? Oh, know? Raymond Burr. Yeah, that's what it was. Raymond Burr as a reporter and just spliced him in at various places, I think that would be interesting to see. It, it is an enjoyable film, uh, and, and I, I found it much more moving. I've certainly seen my share of the various sequels of Godzilla versus insert name of character here, um, but to see the original um, and to really see really what a human story it is, uh, it's not just a, month, a Saturday matinee monster flick, um, Was was really enjoyable. Well... All righty, then. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, listeners, uh, for listening to The Thin Place. If you have comments on this episode or any other, please visit the website, www.filmgeekradio.com, and you can leave a comment, or you can email us at thethinplace at filmgeekradio.com. Ken is on Twitter, at Ken Moorfield, and he also has a blog the number one morefilmblog.com. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!